listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Paul's message today, our main point for the day, is that peace with God creates peace with one another. Peace with God creates peace with one another. So let's turn in your Bibles. Let's open up. We'll read a verse. We'll start off with verse 11 and verse 12. Read along with me. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you are at the time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Paul's giving us a picture without Christ. And listen, it is a picture of total, utter separation. That, if I had to pick one word to describe this section, it is separation. Listen to the words he uses. You're separated, you are alienated, strangers, hopeless. We got to give a little historical background to exactly what this looked like for them. A little history between Jew and Gentile. See, for centuries, the Jews had lived as segregated of lives as they could from the Gentiles. And they would love to have been more segregated. The problem was the Romans had captured their land and, and were kind of ruling over them, and they hated it. Let's go back, all the way back to Genesis 12, when God shows up to a, a homeless, idol-worshiping, nobody wonder named Abraham. It says, Abraham, from your descendants, I'm going to make a great nation. And they're going to be my people, and I'm going to be their God. But this promise, this blessing to Abraham, it was for a purpose. Here, here's the purpose behind all this, Abraham. I'm going to do this so that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. And what God meant by that primarily was Christ, the Messiah, that through the Jewish people, this Messiah would come. But he also kind of secondarily meant Israel was going to be distinct. And they were going to be distinct from all the other people in order to show the world what God was like. They were kind of a form of revelation, you see. And, and so the rest of the world should be able to look at Israel and say, okay, that's who God is. That's what it looks like to live in relationship with God. So for centuries, they were distinct in how they dressed, certainly in their religious practice, even their diet and all of their laws. But that distinction was for a purpose. But here's what happened over time. And what always happens with when our pride gets mixed in, those distinctions lost their purpose and they became pride. And so things shifted from, hey, come and see what God is like to stay out, you unclean heathen. Privilege became hostility. Blessings became superiority. Obedience became arrogance. And so by the time Paul is writing in, in some places, it was not lawful for a Jew to aid a Gentile woman in giving birth because that would be bringing another heathen into the world. Do you see the hostility that existed? And so what Paul is doing here in verse 12 is he's describing a Gentile's life, living in utter separation from the community of faith under the Old Testament law because those were the people farthest from God. 
Again, he says they're separated, they're alienated, they're strangers. He says they're without hope, and finally, without God. It doesn't get any darker than that. That's about as dark of a picture as you can have. And what Paul is saying here is the gospel went to those who were considered farthest from God. God made peace with those who were most separated in Christ. And if he can do that, he can do anything if he can do that. Now, you may say, you know, for God to make peace with me, with between me and God, you know, that's one thing. That's great. That's one thing. But to make peace between me and you, to make peace with one another, well, that's, a, that's a whole different ball of wax, isn't it? How on earth can these two groups so hostile to each other be brought into fellowship? How can this segregation be undone? Well, look at the next five words in verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus. Let's read verse 13 through 17. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. But now in Christ, everything's changed. So verse 11 and 12, that's who you were apart from Christ. Now starting in verse 13, let's talk about who you are in Christ. And men and women, this phrase, in Christ, listen, this is the whole enchilada. This is everything in Ephesians. All that you have before God, all of it is in Christ. And so he says Christ did three things. Number one, he tore down this wall of hostility. Now, Paul is not just being figurative here. There was a literal wall of hostility in the temple. And so many of you uh, know a little bit of what the temple looked like in Herod's day. Just review view it quickly. There were, there were different areas that different people could go in. And so God's presence in the Holy of Holies, one guy could go there, the high priest, once a year. And then outside of that, you had the court of priests. And so all the priests could go there. But then outside of that, you had the court of Israel. Only Jewish men could go there. Then next, you had the court of women, so Jewish women could be there. And then outside of that, you had the court of the Gentiles. And at that court of the Gentiles, there was a thick stone barrier called the wall of separation. And in fact, there was an inscription written on the outside of the wall that said this, No foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. Reminds me a lot of a sign I've seen around here. Trespassers will be shot. Survivors will be shot again. Just keep out. Stay away. You see the hostility? How on earth can such hostility be torn down? That's something only Christ can do. Only Christ can do that because only peace with God creates peace with one another. Let me say the same thing another way. The cause of all of your hostility with people 
is hostility between you and God. Think back way back to the very beginning, the beginning of Genesis when Adam and Eve, they were in perfect fellowship with God and they had one rule. How'd they do with that? Not well. They shook their fist at God. They rebelled and so they were separated from him. They were removed from his presence. And what happens in the very next generation? The first set of brothers, Cain and Abel. Violence. Hostility. Cain kills Abel. But why? What was the hostility all about? It was all about which one God would accept. Who would God accept? Because we've been separated. So each of us, inside of ourselves, we have a deep craving to be accepted by our creator. But we have a problem. We know we aren't acceptable. So you know what we do? We settle for the next best thing. If I can't be acceptable to God, well, at least I can be more acceptable than you. And so because of sin... We enter into hostile competition with one another. And so how we dress, how we vote, the amount of volunteer hours we put in, how much we know, all of these become walls of separation. Ways for us to prove I'm more acceptable than you. And so that's why Christ had to do the second thing he does. Christ had to abolish the law, he says in verse 15. So here's what the Jews were missing in their comparison game. We are all on the outside when it comes to God. We are all separated from God because of sin. None of us can keep the law. It doesn't matter if it's one law or hundreds of laws, like in the day of the Pharisees. We can't keep it. That's why it says in verse 17, Christ had to come preach peace to those who are far off and to those who are considered near. Because really, we're all far off. We're all in the same in so many ways. So what does this mean that Christ abolished the law? Well, that word abolish, it means to nullify. But understand what he's saying here. He's not saying that, so Christ didn't nullify the law in its divinity. He didn't nullify the law in its purpose. He nullified its power to separate you from God. That's what Christ did. How did he do that? Well, the way he nullified it was by fulfilling it. And so the question may come, are you saved by works? Paul's answer is, yes, it's just not your works. It's his. See, Christ, he fulfilled the law. So he takes all of his perfection, all of his measuring up, all of his performance that is perfect, and he gifts it to you. It gets credited to you. It gets applied to you. That's why we say, in Christ, that's the whole enchilada. That's all we have. The only claim we have is being in Christ because he's the one that fulfilled the law. And so really, you can boil down every religion, every belief, every philosophy, every ism in the world can really be put into one of two categories. Category one, and this is Islam, Buddhism, atheism, every other religion besides Christianity. Category one is what you do. Category two is what he did. And that is Christianity alone, being in Christ. But it gets better. So not only did he tear down the wall of hostility, not only did he abolish the law, he created. He created something new, he says in verse 15 and 16. And this new creation is the only thing that will make peace. There's a guy named John Reed who was a bishop in Australia. 
and he would drive a school bus, school bus, and this bus carried both white and Aborigine children. And of course, there's lots of racial tension and hostility between these two groups going back generations. And so the kids, they'd always sit on opposite sides of the bus, and they'd always bicker and fight with each other. And one day, when John was far out in the country, he got sick and tired of all the fighting and the bickering. So he pulled up on the side of the road. He pulled off. He told all the kids, everyone out of the bus. And of course, you know, the white kids went and stood together. The Aborigine kids went and stood together. So John Reed, he went to the white kids first, and he said, what color are you? And they all said, we're white. He said, no, no, you are green. Anyone who rides on my bus has to be green. So now, what color are you? Well, you know, white kids, they don't want to be left on the side of the road, in the bush, in the middle of nowhere. So they said, we're green. He said, great, get get on the bus. He goes over to the Aborigine kids, and he says, what color are you? They say, we're black. He says, no, 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 you are green. Anyone who wants to ride on my bus has got to be green. You know, they were smart. They don't want to be left on the side of the road. So they said, okay, we're green. He says, get on the bus. So they get on the bus, and they ride back in peace for a while, and John said he was so proud of himself for such a clever solution. He thought he'd solve the problem until several miles down the road, he hears one boy in the back stand up and say, okay, all the right, light green on one side, all the dark green on the other side. See, Bishop Reed, he, he had the right idea there on the school bus, but he was just a man. He was powerless to pull it off. He couldn't really create anything new, but Jesus did pull it off. He created a new man, a new community. Community. He didn't tell one to become like the other. He didn't tell them to lose all their distinctiveness and just blend together in some way. No, no, no. He made something new. We're not talking about renovation here. We are talking about new construction, creation. Something that wasn't now is. What's this new creation? It's the church. The church. He calls it the one new man. He calls it the body. And in chapter 4, he's going to elaborate on this idea that we are one body of many parts that together grow into Christ. See, in the church, peace with God has created peace with one another. Let's keep reading. Verse 18. He's going to elaborate on this a little bit. He says, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being our cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So he gives us three metaphors for what the church is here. First, we're fellow citizens. Everyone, Jew, Gentile alike, near and far, everyone has full rights in this kingdom. A Gentile has the same standing as Abraham, Moses, Joshua, David, Elijah. Why? Because all are in Christ. Second, he says we're a family. You all become a part of the same household together. And he says in verse 18 that everyone in this household is a son and daughter. Everyone has access to the Father. Now, think of all they had to do and how few people had access to the Father in the Old Testament. Well, if you're a Gentile, that's impossible. You're not getting past that dividing wall of hostility. If you're Jewish, one guy, once a year, 
has that kind of access. So most are automatically disqualified. You had to be the right tribe. You had to be male. And even that one guy can only do it once a year. You know, it's, it's hard to find an equivalent. We don't have uh, many things like the, the temple in Herod's day in the Old Testament. I was thinking this week, you know, I think one of our closest equivalents would be something like the White House. You know, most of us will never see the inside. Now, a few people maybe will get a tour and they'll get to see certain parts that are uh, open to some small groups. But, you know, there's part of that in the inside that very few people will get to see. Something like the Oval Office. And to get in the Oval Office, you have to be invited by the president. There's going to be all kind of security clearance and everything like that. And most of us can never dream to be there. Now, imagine if me, little old I, said, you know what? I'm going to sneak. I want to get into that Oval Office. So I'm going to sneak into the White House. I'm going to sneak all the way into the Oval Office. Not just the Oval Office, the president himself, his desk. That's where I'm going to go. You know what? I may even play a joke. I'm gonna, I'll hide under that president's desk until he comes. And then I'll, when he comes, I'll jump out and I'll scare him. Wouldn't that be great? Isn't that a great idea? You say, Clint, please don't. That is a bad, bad idea. That is not going to end well for you. But what if I told you that exact thing happened to JFK when he was president? And in fact, there was a photographer on site that captured the moment. And I believe we have that picture for you of what happened. See, under that desk there is John Jr., JFK's son. And John Jr. can do that when I can't because he's family, because that is his daddy. Even the Secret Service can't keep John Jr. away from his daddy. Men and women, what Christ did in creating the church, (laughs) remember the beginning of the passage, all that separation? He took people completely separated from God and brought them near as near as a father to his son. And because we all have that same access to our father, we're at peace with our brothers and our sisters. Peace with God and peace with one one another. But then he goes one step farther. He says we're a temple. See, Jesus, he didn't just knock stuff down. He didn't just tear down a wall. He built something new. He built a structure And he says it's a new temple. And this temple means we all have a common purpose. We are a dwelling place for God. God dwells in his church. The church is a living community that carries God's presence. Now notice, he doesn't say he dwells in you individually. He says he dwells in us together. No brick by itself is a whole temple. All the bricks together are the temple, you see. And that means, listen, there is no such thing as just me and God. God says, hey, I'm dwelling in my church. And if you aren't there, you're not connected to me. I read a recent study today that shows just how much this flies in the face of our individualism. Study said 81% of all Americans answered yes to this question. Do you believe you can be a very good Christian without attending church? 81% of us are going to say yes. But Paul says, no, no. That's his whole point. That's what he's been leading to. He's trying to point out how vital the church is. 
Do you notice how each analogy, believers are getting even more intimately connected? You know, so we're, we're citizens of a nation together. Then we're brothers and sisters under the same house. And then we are bricks cemented together. On your own, you're homeless. You're estranged from your family. You are a brick that's just fallen off the wall. It needs to be repaired. Together, God dwells in us. See, I mean, it's a, it's a beautiful picture of what the church is. And man, if I'm honest this week in this passage, you know, I, I kind of I felt like pulled in two different directions. Because I, I read this and I get excited, but then also get hesitant. And if I'm honest, you know, sometimes real life doesn't match the pretty picture. I found myself asking this week, you know, if this is true, and it is, it is, it is true. But then why are some of the hardest relationships in my life with Christians? You know, have you ever gotten like a pamphlet of something and it looks amazing and beautiful someplace and you go there and it just doesn't, that doesn't look like what, what are, I want to go to the, I want to go to the pamphlet world. That, how do I get there, right? Man, sometimes it's like that in church. There's certainly no shortage of hostility. We can be as bad as Israel at our spiritual pride. We can, man, we can real quickly build some walls of separation and pride. But let me tell you what, Paul is saying what really, I think, helped me and gives me hope. And I, I think this is Paul's point here. See, all, this is all throughout Ephesians and really all throughout Scripture. Paul is saying, listen, as a believer in Christ, you're operating on two realms. There's the positional and there's the practical. So positional is chapters 1 through 3. The practical is chapters 4 through 6. And so another example, chapter 1, Paul says, you are a saint you are holy and you are without blemish. That is true positionally. Positionally, that is who you are. Now, practically, you've got some blemishes, don't you? Practically, you've got about 76 things you need to repent of just this morning alone. But here's, here's what we have to understand. The positional, it's unchanging and definitive. The practical, it changes all the time. But it doesn't define who you are. See, because of this reality, you aren't defined by the worst thing about you. You are defined by the best thing about him because you're in Christ. And so what is most true about you, what is absolutely a firm foundation, is who you are positionally in Christ, the whole enchilada. What you did today, it's going to change all the time. And it's like those slippery roads out there. There is no firm footing in that. Well, that's true for us individually. It's the same for the church. Who we are in Christ is what is most true about us. And this is the best news. It is absolutely the best news because if it isn't already a reality in the heavenly realm, it'll never be a reality in your life. Our only hope of experiencing peace is if he has already accomplished it for us. And then we can walk in it. And this, this is our only peace way to peace because only our peace with God can create peace with one another. 
And so if that's you this morning, maybe you're in the middle of some conflict, maybe you've been hurt in church, or maybe just relationships are hard right now for whatever reason, let me encourage you, continue in hope, continue in faith that there's something true beyond, over, and above your current circumstances. In a sense, what Paul is saying, it's not that Christ will achieve peace. He already has. And finally, let me close and encourage you to a couple more things. And I need to address this because I think it's sad to say because of what we've just described, because it's hard, many have opted out of peace with one another altogether. And we, we, do, we live in a I'm taking my ball and going home world, don't we? So many have abandoned the church and maybe that's you and you're turning in for the first time in a while. And we're happy about that. You know, there's many more who have kind of stuck around but stayed on the outskirts and refused to participate in the church. And that means right now, right now, some of you are praying for God's power in your life. All the while, you have separated yourself from the source of his provision, and that is his people. It's like you're, you're praying for the lamp to turn on, but you haven't plugged it into the socket yet. See, Paul is saying the church is the means by which God's spirit does his work. It is where he dwells. And so if you want to see Christ, if you want to know him more, if you want to see him work in your life, you must be connected to the church. I want to be real practical about what this means because the biblical picture of doing church is far different than often our cultural picture of doing church. So what, what do I mean that? Well, today, it, it, it feels perfectly natural to say, I go to church somewhere, fill in the blank, and mean by that, I show up, I watch other people do ministry, and then I leave. That's, that seems per- perfectly natural. I, I go to church there. That's what I do there. But y'all, when you compare that, not with the, our culture, but when you compare that with the New Testament, it sounds completely insane. Church is not something you watch other people do. It's not being in the room while someone else says some things that you agree with. Remember Paul's analogies here? Church is a nation. It is a family. It is a temple built together to house God's presence. He's going to go on to say in chapter 4, it's, it's a body where each part serves the other so that the whole thing together grows. So God, God has told his people as they gather to do really three things. He said, you need to worship me together. You need to open my word together. And then each person needs to love and serve one another in my name with my gifts. So if you've ever come to a Discover Bethel here, you've heard us use a phrase that goes something like this, worship one, connect one, serve one. And that's just our way of saying, hey, we think if we do make each and every one of us make room in our week to do those three things, we're doing the minimum of what God has called us to do and be as a church. So if you're doing only one of those, and only occasionally, or none of those, you're living in disobedience. And here's the, the danger of disobedience is not smiting. It is not that God is going to smite you. It's that you miss out on God's provision for you through his people. 
So when you say things like, you know, I'm, I'm too busy or I can't commit or I don't know how to do that or I don't really get along with those people. You know, these are just hypotheticals, not that anyone has actually said these things. Let's be clear about what's happening. You are removing yourself from the dwelling place of God and his Holy Spirit. Listen, so if I'm too busy to be where God is, I need to clear some things off my calendar, don't I? I say this, I'm hoping, listen, not to shame you. We, we all know, hey, shaming someone into getting involved in church, that'll last you about two weeks. That's it. No. I say this to beg you to trust God for your own good. Because let me tell, I don't have to tell you, this is one of the saddest things you see in church, and it happens all too often. You know, someone begins distancing themselves for church for a, a host of reasons. Someone makes them mad, they get bored, they get too busy, their kids are really good at sports, and that seems more fulfilling. There's a million reasons. It happens over a process, over a period of time. And then that day comes. They get the phone call, they get the diagnosis, the spouse leaves, the crisis hits, and they are alone because they have separated themselves from God's people. They are like a sheep who has wandered from the herd when the wolf comes. And all of a sudden, in that, these are moments of clarity. In that moment, all the things that they made a priority over the church, they're suddenly empty, completely and totally worthless. And they say, I can't tell you how many times we've heard this. I don't know how I got here. I don't know how I ended up here plays out all the time. Hear my plea. Don't wait for that day. Invest yourself in God's people now. Because let me tell you some of the, one of the best things you see in church. Same crisis hits, but God provides through his people. It's not fun. It's still a crisis, but all of a sudden you realize how God works through his people. And all those Sundays you got yourself to church, they're all more than worth it. All those people you loved and served are now loving and serving you. And all those times you fought and prioritized and gave to stay connected to the body of Christ, you realize that's all that's keeping you alive because you could never survive this on your own. That's another moment of clarity. You see, God does provide through his people. He does dwell in his church. These are the moments. And what is positionally true of the church works itself into the practical. Peace with God creates peace with one another. Men and women, we can't accept the first and ignore the second. We can't say, God, thanks for the peace with you. Peace with one another? No thanks. So let's be the nation, the family, the dwelling place for God that he says we are. Let's walk in what we already know to be true of us in Christ. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.